convey the the way you have healed from from that hurt be the gift that you offer the redemptive gift that you offer to mm-hmm. others who have been hurt in the same way and mm-hmm. i so i do think um the who we are is is a really important part of of um the gifts that we are able to access and offer and and both who we are from our struggles as well as from you know the good stuff i'm just standing not demanding a link a light a share a blink a nod for i don't get it friends Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Glenn, and uh, this is the What If Project. Uh, Excuse my voice here in the intro. Uh, I am still battling allergies. Uh, The pollen here in North Carolina is like off the charts. Uh, Cars that are normally white are green. Uh, The ground is green. You walk outside, and you look like Shrek. I mean, it is like unbelievable the amount of pollen this year. And I was mowing the lawn the other day, uh, front and back, and the pollen was like blowing in my face. And so obviously I did this to myself. I've taken allergy medication. It is what it is. I'm living with it. I'm dealing with it. Uh, But if you hear some weird things going on in my voice, um, that is what's going on. So anyway... I wanted to let you know, too, I'm doing some um, COVID-19 check-ins here at the podcast. So there's four uh, kind of bonus episodes if you go through the podcast reel and look back um, over the last couple of weeks. There's four short, like, 10-minute episodes where I'm just checking in with you, uh, praying with you, talking about something that might be on my mind or on my heart at the time, and it's just a a time to uh, hopefully encourage you and uh, share some of my own thoughts um, as I process things on my end. So go back and check those out and uh, pass them along. A lot of people have found them helpful, and so I hope that um, you will too. Today, uh, this is part number nine of our series, uh, Women's Voices You Need to Hear. And today we're talking to um, Connie Tuttle, who wrote a book called A Gracious Heresy, The Queer Calling of an Unlikely Prophet, and you are going to love Connie. Um, I feel like I made a new friend in talking to her. We're already planning for the next time she's going to be coming onto the podcast in the fall, and so uh, I am super excited, super excited about that, and to share her story and her voice um, with with you. Patreon.com is a place where you can go to support the show financially. So if you find this podcast to be encouraging. Um, or challenging you in your faith and pushing you forward in your walk with the divine, uh, please go over there and consider uh, supporting the show anywhere from $3 a month all the way up to $30 a month, anywhere in between. Every tier gets its own reward. Uh, So I will put the link to that in the show notes. Go check it out. Uh, What If Project Community is a place where you can go on Facebook uh, to find people who maybe like yourself are wandering through the wilderness of their faith trying to figure things out, uh, rethinking things, evolving, growing, changing, trying to find their voice. And uh, everybody is in there cheering each other on, sharing resources they have found helpful. And it's just such a wonderful place um, to be, especially during these times, um, being home during COVID-19. I find myself going there periodically throughout the day, uh, reading people's comments and always leaving feeling um, encouraged and inspired. Uh, from my own walk and my own journey with with God. So I'll put the link to that as well in the show notes. And uh, special music today is uh, by my friends, uh, the Denver Kreitz Band. Uh, I'll put the link to all their music in the show notes as well. I work with one of their band members. He's an amazing guy, super encouraging, super passionate, um, always has a good word for me when I walk into work. And uh, so go and support support them. You're sitting home, right? Or we should be sitting home. Uh, hashtag stay home. So go check out their music, uh, download it, pass it around. Uh, I'm sure that you will find it as great as um, I do. So uh, Denver Kreitz Band, 
is their name. What I've been doing for this series is before we roll into the episode is reading for you um, something from a female voice. So if our uh, guest has written a book, which Connie has, um, I read an excerpt from their book or maybe a piece of feminist theology, uh, maybe a, a poem written by a female voice. So today I want to read for you um, a, a short segment from A Gracious Heresy. Uh, again, her name is Connie Tuttle. And a very short uh, sentence to end uh, chapter chapter 5. This is what she says. God calls us to confront evil with love. And love seems to be like an awfully flimsy weapon, given the depth of evil that we are capable of perpetrating on one another. But the activity of love is justice, and God enlists human souls to do justice and be justice as the antidote to evil. Thank you for dropping by. Again, this is episode number 88, part number nine of our series, Women's Voices You Need to Hear, and it's my conversation with Connie Tuttle. Enjoy. I'm just standing, not demanding a link, a light, a share, a blink, a nod. For I don't get it, so I'll never get it. The style, what's hip, what gets those kids to applaud. But then you. Came along. Hey everybody, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. Uh, today we're sitting down with my friend Connie Tuttle uh, to talk about her story as told in her book, A Gracious Heresy, subtitled The Queer Calling of an Unlikely Prophet. So Connie, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for making the time to chat with me. Well, thank you, Glenn, for having me. Absolutely. So I heard about you from my friend Mike Morell, who I'm assuming you know. I do. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so he invited me out for lunch uh, one day. And uh, being the crazy, generous guy that he is, he came to the table with, no joke, two huge boxes of books <laughs> for <laughs> potential, potential podcast interviews. And he went through each book uh, one by one to tell me about the author, to tell me about what the book is about. And he highly recommended uh, your book in particular. And uh, even though I'm not one to judge a book by its cover, uh, the title absolutely just drew me right in. I'm like, I got to read this book. I don't know what this thing is about. But uh, before we get too far into it, I was wondering, maybe you could share with us a little bit of your, of your story. Maybe tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, who are you? Uh, what do you do? How do you, how do you spend your days? Ah, well, I wear many hats. Uh, currently, I am, um, I, I was one of the people who started 26 years ago, a progressive uh, feminist Christian house church. And mm-hmm. I have pastored that through many of its cycles over the years. And so that's uh, one thing I do, which involves um, a lot of creative liturgy and worship and theological exploration as, as well as um, and playing with language and ideas and kind of blowing it open and taking mm-hmm. God out of a box and, and, <laughs> and seeing where that leads us. And then it's also built um, deep community over the years of, of uh, a core group um, of people who, who are just journeying together and mm. continue to like pose and be willing to wrestle with difficult questions. So that's one piece. Then I'm also state supply at a little um, Presbyterian church in Tallapoosa, Georgia, which is a town of about 3000. And, um, and they sort of know who I am and know my story and they've invited me in and I drive out there, which is about 75 miles from here. uh, Every Sunday morning, we, circle of grace my home church um worships in the evening hmm. so in the morning i drive out to Tallapoosa and um and lead worship there hmm. and in the interim i also have a counseling practice so i'm i'm kind of a tent maker <laughs> and and then and then i write so um and then for fun um, <laughs> 
if you have time, right? <laughs> when I have time, I, I really like, so one of my creative endeavors is cooking and, and hospitality is, is a really important thing to me. So um, I like to cook and, and feed people and that can be um, both in volunteering in shelters, but also just having people in my home. Mm. So I'm pretty busy. Sounds like it. So the, that you, you have the house church in the evening, right? And then you right. have the other church in the morning. How is it right. going from, how is it going from, a, I guess you would call it like a traditional church setting in the morning and then transitioning into a very different setting in the evening? Is it hard to switch gears or do you find now that it's more natural since you've been doing it for a little while? You know, that's a really good question. I think what I would say is um, when I first started preaching at Tallapoosa, before I became State Supply, I was sort of just a regular fill-in. They, don't, they haven't had uh, a regular pastor in several mm. years. Um, every week I thought, you know what? They're going to ask me to leave because I'm preaching some stuff, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. It might not be well accepted, but mm. so I don't switch gears. I, I, I think I have to be authentic to who God is calling me to be. Now I might be, um, I also, part of my call is that to be prophetic means to be pastoral, mm. that when you are prophetic within the community, you have to love that community. You have yeah. to care about the people and their relationship with God. And, and so, yeah, no, I don't switch gears. Maybe not. Maybe I should do it more so, but that's just not who I am. I guess I was asking because I, I used to pastor a, a church and it was a very old uh, Dutch reformed church in my, my older days. My, my young, well, I'm, I'm 38 years old. So I was fresh out of seminary at the time. I was 20 like 25, I guess. And, uh, you know, stood up in front every Sunday morning you, know, you have your pews. It's a very old, uh, right. setting. And then after that, my wife and I did a church plant in our garage and that felt more like a house church. We didn't, we lived in a small apartment, so we didn't have much room. So we, we went into the garage and that was just a very different feel for me. So I was wondering if you felt that, that difference in feel. Yes. Yes. It's, um, uh, the liturgy and the language, yeah, yeah, you know, is something that is very different. Um, I try to, I try to make sure that it is familiar to them, but sure. with that being theologically offensive to me, right? <laughs> that makes that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, but so. yes, there there is that difference, um, and. Uh, you know, there's also this sort of grace that is about being in that church because yeah. the Presbyterian church refused to ordain me. Mm. Um, and so to come to this point in my life where I have, I have a contract and I was asked and I was hired and I serve communion and I do all of the, you know, even though I'm not a Presbyterian and, um, I do all of the pastoral roles. Um, mm. it, it's sort of full circle. It's sort of like, I don't know, there's, there's a grace for me in that to have uh, been affirmed somehow by yeah. a, a, an institution that, that rejected me. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, that's probably a good tie in to, uh, first thing I want to ask you about is the, the subtitle of your book. Uh, the queer calling of an unlikely prophet. And uh, one of the things that I've been kind of wondering is, uh, has that title gotten you into any trouble at all? And I, and I ask that because uh, some people I've noticed are super touchy at the idea of somebody referring to themselves as a, as a prophet. Uh, one time I put something in my, my Twitter bio that was a, a lyric from a song about the importance of being a prophet of love or grace or something like that. And I got like railed on from people from my old, old tribe and it was completely innocent. I'm like, it's the lyric of a song, like relax, you know? And so just curious as to how people have reacted to that and maybe talk to us a little bit about uh, what the term an unlikely prophet uh, refers to. Um, yeah. So, so the first person that said something to me 
about it was um, the woman who uh, did a story edit of my book. And she's a writer that I really admire. And, um, and she's also a, a deeply spiritual person. She wrote her own spiritual memoir about being um, the uh, a black Buddhist nun. Mm. Uh, and she said, you know, people are going to get really turned off by that. You, you, I, you, you know, you, they're going to think you're really full of yourself. And I said, <laughs> okay, I, I got the answer to that. And that's out of that came that the first chapter of the book where I said, look, if you think this is what a prophet is, I'm not any of that. Mm. Um, this is what I have learned that a prophet is, and I'm not even a very good one, mm. but my voice is prophetic because, uh, as Jeremiah says, because there's this fire burning inside of me and, and I just can't shut up. Mm. Um, and so I, I, I tried to put it in, in a way I try that whole chapter was really revelatory for me. I was able to say, you know, look, I'm not a soothsayer. I don't have a special line to, you know, direct line to God. Uh, I make a lot of mistakes. And yet uh, this is the work that I'm doing. Mm. Um, and, and I'm not really good at it. So, <laughs> uh, so I, if anyone bothers to, to open the book, then I think that, that maybe they can take a breath and, and calm down. I'll, although, frankly, if people are going to be offended, um, they're probably not going to open the book in the first place. So, right, yeah, exactly. I might have myself in the foot with that one. Now, I love the way that you talk about um, being a prophet in that first chapter and kind of what uh, the idea, like what, what, what the picture of a prophet, you know, really is. And you, you have some specific examples in there, but it reminded me of when I was in like my last year of seminary, I was trying to figure out like what I was going to do. And you know, everybody who goes to seminary goes to pastor church. So I was like, I guess I'll go, you know, I'll go do that. It feels like that's what I'm built to do. And it's a long story, but like when I got to the church, I wasn't, I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. So uh, mm. life led me down a, a different trail and, you know, here I am all these years later, but in that last year of seminary, my professor said to me, he said, you know, you're going to go to church for a while. You're going to do the pastor thing. But he's like, I've watched you grow through college and through seminary. And he's like, you're just, you're not going to be there for a long time. And he said, you know, you're, he said, there's something prophetic in you. And he said, that doesn't mean that you're, you know, somebody who foretells the future or anything like weird like that. He goes, I'm saying that you have, you have a voice and you have something to say. And he said, the things that you say, Typically, he said, when I read your papers, you see things very differently than people normally see them. And he said, sometimes the way that you see them aggravates people. And he said, so sometimes it kind of rattles people's cages. And he said, if you look at the prophets, you know, that's kind of what the prophets did. As they came onto the scene, they spoke about something that was maybe differently than you know, maybe what was considered orthodox at the time. And it often got them in a little bit of trouble. And so he said, I see that in your future. <laughs> I think looking back on it, you know, it's kind of like he was right because here I am having uh, this conversation with you, I'm another unlikely prophet. And um, your story seems to be to be one that goes in a very, I guess, untraditional way, if you want to consider what the norm might be in the church. Right, right. Well, and part of that probably has to do for me, although it sounds like you came from a, uh, were grounded in a much more traditional setting. Yeah, I, I came from a pretty untraditional setting. Mm. So, it's almost like I didn't have a chance of, well, or wanted to. I mean, I think that we are made and, and graced and gifted with a voice. Um, I don't necessarily think it's something that, that we look for. Yeah. I think everybody's got to, but sometimes I think it's, for me, it just felt like it was there, but it was covered up by a lot of things. Um, I noticed in my own life, just a lot of baggage was covering my voice and I had to go through through some times of counseling and some different things to kind of, I guess, find myself for lack of a better phrase. But once I was able to unearth the voice and push away some of the rubble, uh, I found something there that was, I felt unique and uh, something that I was excited to use. And I think you have a voice that is so important in this day and age. Mm. And there are so many people who um, are wounded and searching 
And so I think your, your voice is an important voice. Thank you. That's encouraging. I, I can see why you're, why you're a pastor. <laughs> Thank you. So let's talk about, uh, I want to talk about a couple of the bigger themes uh, that jumped out at me in your book. Um, first one is from a young age, it seems like you had a very deep, uh, I would call almost like burden in you to come to the defense of the outcast or those who spend their days on the, the margins of society or of the church. Uh, like you tell the you know, personal stories about being deeply upset by things like racial segregation, uh, like Nazi Germany's treatment of the Jews, things that would upset any normal person. But from the stories you shared, it seems like those things shook you deeply at a, at a very young age. I was wondering if you could talk to me a little bit more about that, maybe share some of your earlier memories of feeling a, a spark ignite in you to kind of stand with or come to the aid of those who, who are marginalized in the world. I, I think that the, the answers have to be my parents. And so my mother was a deeply Christian person, hmm. but her center was, and, and this was all the way through my life, you know, that our job is to love people and God can sort out the rest. Hmm. And um, even when uh, she was in her 80s and she moved up here and she's living with me in my home and a member of, of Circle of Grace, which is the, the house church I was I pastored for so many years, had a, a really bad bicycle accident and and broke her hip. And this was a young transgendered woman. And mm. mom said, you know, she can't go up and down the steps in her home. She, she, we're just going to move her in to my apartment, which was down, downstairs in my house. And they lived together for like nine months while um, the, the young woman was in, in recovery from this really bad accident. And I, I was thinking, you know, you'd think at, at her advanced age, not having been exposed to um, transgender people, um, that that might be a problem. But mm. she just totally loved this person and they became dear friends across not only that barrier, but across the barrier of age and experience. And so there is this, like, my understanding of, of my faith was really wrapped up in this centrality of love that I saw modeled in every single way that my mom was in the world. Mm. And so then when you love people, you know, it is not a feeling <laughs> or it is not merely a feeling. It, love is that incredibly active verb that implies justice. And so when you see injustice or when I see injustice, you know, that everything just rolls up in me that says must, we must speak, we must stand. And, and so the other place that comes from is, you know, my father was a career um, military. He was mm. infantry and in combat and, and his willingness um, to put his life on the line for something bigger than himself. Mm. He is bigger than himself was like how I was raised that that's what you do. Mm. And so I had this kind of interesting, wonderful mesh of, of a, a, a really um, love-oriented Christian mom and this, this justice kind of living dad. I, I, mm. So I don't know. I think I had to kind of turn out the way I did. Yeah, it makes sense that if you had a mom who kind of uh, modeled those things for you on a, on a regular basis. And you had your father who was, you know, often off standing up for people who maybe many people he doesn't even know that he was standing up for, I guess those things are just going to be ingrained in you 
uh, from a young age. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, really fortunate. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that like, do you think our calling or our purpose in life is often linked to something in our childhood that maybe disturbs us for an unexplainable reason, or like you said, is kind of wired into your, your DNA by those around you. And I ask that because I look back on my own life, uh, the things that I'm doing with this podcast, like in this season of my life, these are always things that were close to my heart as a kid. Like I loved coming alongside of people who felt like they didn't fit in. My mom always did that very well for people. So I guess that's something that's maybe wired into me from a young age, but I love talking with people who, you know, saw things that were different than the norm. I, I looked up to people who, you know, blazed trails and thought differently. And so I feel like this podcast helps me talk to those kinds of people that I've always looked up to and allows me to kind of come alongside of fellow wilderness wanderers, I guess, and help them develop words for their own spiritual journey. Does that make any sense? Like, does the stuff that is, you know, makes us passionate as children and come to life, do those things often maybe have something to say about where we're going to go with our gifts as adults? Yeah, I, th- I think so. And, and I think that it happens even when our experiences aren't positive. Hmm. Uh, I recently uh, gave a charge for a friend who um, um, has graduated from seminary and is now working in a church. And I, I know that her early journey in the church was, was very um, spiritually hurtful. Hmm. And I know that in the charge I said to her, may the the way you have healed from from that hurt be the gift that you offer the redemptive gift that you offer to mm-hmm. others who have been hurt in the same way and mm-hmm. i so i do think um the who we are is is a really important part of of um the gifts that we are able to access and offer and, and both who we are from our struggles as well as from, you know, the good stuff. Hmm. What advice would you have for the person listening today who, you know, maybe they're in that spot where they're like, I don't know what the heck I'm doing with my life. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know if there's a, a calling on my life. I don't know if I'm supposed to go this way or that way. They're, they're trying to maybe find themselves. Maybe like you just said, they've, they've experienced an immense amount of hurt in their life. Um, kind of as a, as a pastor uh, who has gone through your own journey of finding your voice and finding yourself, what, what advice would you give to that person today? To, to the person who's struggling to find the direction of their own life, is that? Yeah, a person who's just trying to figure out, you know, what is my, what is my calling? You know, I have all these different passions. I have all these different things. I just feel like it's a big jumbled up mess in my mind that I'm trying to figure out what the next step to take is towards my, my bigger purpose in life. You know, I think one of the first things I would say is lose your assumptions. Mm, that's because good. God is unexpected. Yep. Um, and I think, you know, the next thing I would say is listen really hard. Hmm. And when you're done listening, you're going to be afraid. Mm. <laughs> and so then, then I think the next thing you have to do is to trust God and trust that relationship. Um, it may not end up looking anything like what you anticipated. Mm. Um, and it may not even be safe. And it may not be the thing that, you know, gives you security in the, externals i think that's the scary thing about being faithful is unlike the prosperity gospel folks there are no guarantees i mean right. road right into jerusalem you know <laughs> so i would say let go of your assumptions and listen and trust and you know if there are going to put one caveat in the end of it, I would say you're going to make mistakes. You may not hear right the first time, or you may, it might be right for a while and then something else is right. Um, You know, being open to God's leading is, 
is unexpected and often very joyful and always trepidatious, if that's a word I can make it up. Absolutely. That's why, um, and I know you've, you've played a role at the, at the Wild Goose Festival, but I think that's the beautiful picture of referring to the spirit as a goose, right? A wild goose that just goes here, there, everywhere. You never know which way he's going to turn next, but uh, right. you're, on, you're, on, you're on the trail for a, a wild ride. For sure. If I look back on my own life, you know, I think 10 years ago when I was in seminary and stuff like that, I, I would have never imagined that I would be doing this 10 years later. Um, but there's different, I can look back now, it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback and kind of go back over your life. But it's, I can see where I made different decisions that had I thought, had I done something differently at that time and done what maybe felt safe, I wouldn't be where I am now at all. And you may not have been at peace in your faith journey had you made yeah. Sometimes the easy thing or what feels easy at the moment might be the thing that doesn't give you peace, the peace that you're longing for. Sometimes it might be the hard thing that gives you the peace. Yes. Well, yeah. my experience is it's often the hard thing. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> so another thing I wanted to ask you about is, um, is your baptism. If you could take us back to the, the time when you were baptized, you, you were fresh out of uh, juvenile detention um, in the book you talk about, and you decided that you wanted to be baptized. And you have this uh, quote on page 56. You say, baptism was a pledge to a way of being in the world and a way of relating to God. So maybe talk to me a little bit about that, because i uh, love to hear a little bit more of the story. Um, and then maybe share with us how you, how you view baptism. And I ask that because a lot of our listeners, and myself included, grew up and kind of were taught that baptism is this thing that you do to declare that you're going to follow Jesus and it sort of like seals the deal, you know, on your salvation and getting you into heaven when you die. But you have some very beautiful insights that you weave into the story. So I was wondering if you could take us back to that, to that moment. Well, you know, I was a pretty passionate kid back then. And I, <laughs> that's, you know, so everything was deep and, and deeply connected and emotional. Um, my mom believed that, one was baptized by consent, that you really had to be conscious of what you were promising mm. when you were baptized, that there, that there was meaning in that. So she didn't believe in infant baptism. Like, I really don't have a strong feeling either way. But because of that, it was like, okay, I, I want to be baptized. What am I saying? What am I mm. Saying to God, what what is this commitment that I'm making with God? And it was, you know, that the questions of baptism. Have you reread them any time recently? And this was this was in the Methodist Church, which is not the church I stayed in. But you know, they're they're asking if you're going to serve the world, if you're going to speak for justice, if you're going to mm -hmm. resist evil, if you're going to do all these things, and and like that's not, those aren't small, empty questions. Yeah. You know, it, 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 the other piece is sometimes I think we don't take the vows we make seriously sometimes, hmm. but everything that was in my, you know, adolescent heart was like, yes, God, this is absolutely going to do it. Sign on the line. I'm following this way of being in the world and I'm going to follow Jesus all the way to Galcapa, you know? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there, there was that um, sense that, that I was cutting a covenant. I would say in, in old uh, language, cutting a covenant with God that, that we were, we were having a contract. We were making an a, agreement. Mm with one another and that I could have easily not made that agreement. But if I was going to, then it sort of implicated me into a way of being. It's really good. It's not so much a way of something that you, it's not, not a way of believing, but a way of being in the world. Yeah. Hmm. I like yeah. That. You know what? I really have never cared uh, if I were going to go to hell or not. Hmm. One, right now because i don't believe in it but two, <laughs> i 
I, I finally cannot believe in a God that would invent such a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I never felt like I had to do or say something to keep from, you know, hanging over the eternal sulfuric flames of hell. It was yeah. like, no, God's not going to do that. I know yeah. God in that. <laughs> hmm. Were you brought up at all with like the doctrine of hell? Was that something that was in your, like in your background at all or no? Yeah, no. no. So, so, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I like how you said that. Yeah, no. <laughs> so it, we always went to chapel, you know, yeah. every Sunday. And so the chaplain could be from any denomination. I mean, I, I'd, so there, so if you are a chaplain who is preaching in a, what is essentially a non-denominational setting, I would call it now ecumenical, but where people come from all kinds of backgrounds, you really can't preach doctor mm. because not everybody comes with that same expectation of what doctrine is. And mm. so, so the little kid in me never got, you know, whether it was the Pentecostal or the High Episcopalian or the Lutheran or the Methodist or the Baptist, you know, the doctrines were not kind of what I remember getting preached. And if I did, I had to filter out, like, what's the common thread that all of these people who have preached in that pulpit, what's the common thread? Yeah. Isn't that weird? It is very weird. I think that I think when when I listened to you tell your story and I you just you know you said a little while ago you don't you don't believe in a hell anymore or you don't believe in a hell. I would say for myself that's where I'm at now and my upbringing was so oh, it was was so different in that I was I was raised in a, a private Christian school from the fourth through twelfth grade and we had chapel service um, every Thursday, Bible classes. And I was taught, you know, hell. And if you don't believe this about Jesus, you don't say this prayer, um, you know, that's where, where you're going to go. And I was talking to my mom about this a few weeks ago that I remember going to bed at night, like absolutely terrified because I was told that we had to evangelize and we had to tell people about Jesus. And that if my parents didn't believe in Jesus, you know, that they were going to go to hell and I was going to go to heaven. But, you know, God is love and God loves me and it'll be a great eternity. And I'm like, I had separation anxiety as it was as a kid, you know, so just having that like pouring on top of me was, was horrible. But, you know, I, I believed that for the longest time. And then I came across Rob Bell's book when he wrote Love Wins. And I remember I read the book and I was like, wait a minute, there's another way to think about this stuff, you know, and that just totally sent me down this, this crazy trail of reading as much as I possibly could about the things he talked about in that book. And now I'm at this place today where I'm like, I don't, I don't believe in that at all anymore. So um, it's nice to hear somebody else say it the way that I would say it. <laughs> wow. I, I am so sorry that you were hurt in the name of God and in the name of Jesus. Mm. And I wish your story were not so common. Mm. Um, I, I I have met so, so many people who have been hurt in the name of God. I call it um, spiritual abuse. Yeah. And I don't know that that's the intention, but I think that that's the, the end result. Yeah, I think so. I, I've, had a, I've had a hard time in my mind letting myself label it as that. But when I have allowed myself to kind of process and think through things in the past, like that's that's really what it is. And as I hear other people tell their stories, some much worse than that, um, mm-hmm. abuse is really what it is. And I think you bring out a good point. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that the people who inflicted the abuse meant to. I think that I look back at my teachers, my pastors, I think their hearts were in very good places, but I don't think that they realized the damage that they were doing, especially on a young, a young mind and a young heart. Right. So I, I think... I don't know if in seminary you read the book Stages of Faith, but when I think about people who are in that kind of rigid way of thinking, 
is that they have not, are not in a system that allows them to grow and mature and develop uh, into larger ways of thinking. So they're kind of stuck in the maybe 10 year old, if I get caught, I'm going to get in trouble. Yeah. Punished and, and not, um, you know, maybe a, a more matured, informed understanding of faith because the system kind of, it, it catches people there and it, it concretizes uh, rather than encouraging um, development and growth that would be really natural given uh, it taking that away, that yeah. kind of rigidity of thought. Yeah. I think too that once you, even for me, like once I started to think logically about hell, like it just didn't make any sense to me anymore. Um, Like thinking about, you know, Jesus encouraging us to forgive our enemies, modeling forgiveness for his enemies on the cross with his last breath when he says, you know, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. But yet that same God isn't who wants us to forgive our enemies. Isn't going to forgive his, his own. So to speak. you know I mean? I just, nothing. It just didn't make any sense to me. Like, I'm like, how, how could that possibly be? And like, if you think of, you know, Jesus leaving his disciples, like he didn't say, go out and build a religion in my name, get everybody to believe the right things about me. Cause if they don't, well, then I'm going to have to th- put them in hell, you know, when they die, like it just, right. it's, it just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's not logical. If you think about it like that. <laughs> No, it's it's not logical, and it doesn't express any of the grace that yeah. that Jesus like modeled and taught, and and and, and the tough grace of, that challenged the people his time as well as our time. So I got one more quote for you uh, from your book. Um, right. I want to ask you if you could um, kind of expand on it for me. But you say I want it to be like Martin Luther King Jr. I wanted to live like that, to stand for justice like that, to serve something more important than me like that. I desperately wanted to be called to do some great task. Then God began to nudge me, but once nudged, I resisted. So there you have it. Only later did I discover that my call was not to any great work, but to a million daily small tasks. Um, I love that that last phrase, um, a million daily small tasks past because I feel like kind of what we said a little a little while ago that sometimes we assume our life is going to go a certain way uh, we think that um, you know we're going to do maybe some big thing but then we get into our lives and our lives don't shape up the way that we thought and it ends up that our calling is to a million small tasks so I was wondering if you could maybe talk to me a little bit more about what that phrase means means for you and uh, maybe help us kind of apply it to our own lives a little bit. Yeah, and and I have to say it it was um egotistically a letdown. Really God, mm-hmm. I got all this talent, you don't want to right. use it. This is it. That's <laughs> what you want. And yet probably for me the the greater uh spiritual practice is the million small tasks are uh, listening deeply um, mm. they are um, how I'm in relationship with um, everyone that I come into contact with how I speak to people um, particularly now in this difficult and fraught time in our nation so mm. how do I speak justice with with grace to people, how mm-hmm. how do I um, encounter each person as a child of God? Um, and that's from, you know, Circle of Grace for many years um, cooked and served meals and ate with the men of a, a local shelter. Um, and one of the things that we did that that none of the other groups who did that cooking did was that you know, we sat down and ate with the men and, and, and were their equals mm. uh, and treated them with dignity and respect and, and expected the same back that, that we, that the, 
we tried to eliminate the power dynamic that was there because of having homes with the homeless or um, for those of us, it, it's, we're not all of one race, but those of us who are white um, speaking with men of color or those of us who are women speaking with men. So, you know, the small but great, uh, the small task but great gift of treating each person as a beloved child of God. Mm. I like that. I, I, I think back when I, when I was a, a pastor um, and I left the church, I went to work for Apple and that was 10 years ago and I still work for Apple today. And uh, so 10 years of working in an Apple retail store and dealing with literally sometimes hundreds of people a day and uh, working on teams of people, as many as a hundred people on our, on our team in one store. Uh, so really I've had the opportunity to interact with lots and lots and lots of people. And a few years into the, that role, I remember thinking to myself, Oh, like this is, this is, this is different. This is challenging. Like there's like, like you said in the quote, like a million small things that I can exercise my faith in. And it's how I interact with these, these people, you know, there's some customers Let's just face it. Sometimes you just want to punch them in the face, you know, like it's just, it's, they're very difficult people to deal with, but it's in that moment where if I could catch myself and I could take a breath and I can try to recognize the divine in that person who also lives in me, can I find that commonality? How can that commonality change the way I'm going to speak or respond to this person? It's a huge challenge that I think has stretched me and grown me um, in amazing ways that would have never happened had I stayed behind the pulpit, I think every Sunday for the last 10 years. Right. Well, well, Glenn, I think both of us are what I, doing what I would call living into our baptism. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Living into our, our covenant, right? Right. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, Connie, this has been um, a lot of fun. I think we're going to have to have another conversation soon. Uh, I would but, love that. I have really enjoyed this conversation, Glenn. You, you uh, make me think, but I also think you're making space for people who, who need this kind of space. So thank you. Oh, uh, thank you. And before you go, where can people find you online? What's the best place to find your work and uh, maybe to connect with you? Oh, great. Well, um, I have a website, ConnieTuttle.com, and on there uh, is, is my blog and links to my book which, and, you know, just information. If you're interested, there's a little thing and uh, there's a place where you can contact me and I will be glad to, um, I'll get an email and then I'll be glad to, to respond to that. Yes. And for our listeners, she does respond because she responded to me <laughs> and thank you. <laughs> and I'll put the links to all those things in the show notes along with your book as well. And I will set up another time to talk soon. Thanks Glenn. Take care. You too, Connie. I'm just standing, not demanding a link, a like, a share, a blink, a nod. For I don't get it, so I'll never get it. The style, what's hip, what gets those kids to applaud. But then you. You came along Bringing words to my melodies Of a brand new song Just waiting for me To join in And I don't mind Thinking about it I feel fine Just thinking about it Someday I make it out of Wasted half of my life coming down from false peaks. You see, kids, I thought I was high on life. Turns out I was just high, but then you. 
Well, you came along Bringing words to my melodies Of a brand new song Just waiting for me To join Just waiting for me to join. 